Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Did you know that students get it free? The Irish Times offers a free digital subscription to all full-time undergraduates. Keep up to date for free with quality journalism and reporting. Claim yours today at irishtimes.com slash subscribe slash student. It's Wednesday, September the 21st, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With Vladimir Putin announcing a partial mobilisation of Russian forces in response to military setbacks in Ukraine, and the EU preparing for an unprecedented energy challenge as a result of that conflict this winter, one might be forgiven for not paying attention to a number of significant political events which may yet reshape some of the politics at the national level in a number of European countries. The recent election in Sweden positions the Sweden Democrats, a party with roots in the extreme right and neo-Nazism, as the largest single group in a right-wing bloc which holds a slender majority in the new parliament. Meanwhile, in Italy, where a general election takes place this Sunday, the Brothers of Italy, another party with a fascist past, seems likely to lead a new coalition government, with its leader Giorgia Maloney as prime minister. And in Hungary, the self-professed illiberal democracy of Viktor Orban seems set to finally suffer long-promised punitive measures in the form of cuts in EU structural funding due to its failure to comply with EU standards for rule of law and anti-corruption regulations. So what is actually happening in these countries and what are the implications for the EU bloc as a whole at this moment of crisis? To discuss this, I'm joined from Brussels by our Europe correspondent, Naomi O'Leary. Hi, Naomi. Hi, Hugh. Great to be with you. Let's go to Italy first. It's a country you know well. You've worked there as a journalist in the past. Um, as I say, this election is happening on Sunday. Why is there an election? It's uh, It was called about two months ago. Why, why is it happening? Italy needed to have an election at some point, but the main reason is that the coalition that had propped up Prime Minister Mario Draghi as Prime Minister, a technocrat Prime Minister, a non-politician, uh, that collapsed, uh, which precipitated this election. And that was a sort of a, a big tent coalition that included some of the, the populist parties which have risen there over the last few years, as well as centre-left and centrist parties. Yeah, the only opposition party actually was Brothers of Italy, who are now poised to be the most popular party in the elections, according to polls. Um, so this is a party that would have been, you know, pretty small. It, it sort of... it. It coalesces together the more hard right elements and usually forms part of the broader right wing coalition while being a distinct party. And they have managed to, Georgia Maloney has managed to increase her profile, grow in the polls and eclipse the other sort of hard right figure in politics, Matteo Salvini, by taking that opposition, by distinguishing herself as being on the opposition benches. So she's really managed to, to hoover up a lot of the populist vote because because of the problems, I suppose, the populist parties often face when they enter into government and then end up inevitably uh, disappointing the people who elected them. Well, what we've seen in a series of Italian elections, um, 2013, 2018, is that Italians repeatedly vote for change. So there's a swing to whoever the newcomer is. 
2013, that was a dramatic um, explosion onto the scene of the Five Star Movement, um, which has since sort of splintered and disintegrated and faded away. Uh, and, you know, it's still there, it's hanging on, but it's a shadow of what it was. Um, and then in 2018, there was another swing, this time in the fav- favour of the of the League, uh, formerly the Northern League, used to be a, uh, a regionalist party that wanted the north of Italy to split off and be its own country. But then it rebranded as a national hard right uh, party and was quite successful that time. So this time it's Giorgia Maloney, who's the new thing. Um, she's 45. Uh, she's from Rome. And she is not a newcomer to parliamentary politics. Uh, she was one of the youngest ministers in Italy's history. She was also a really young um, uh, elected member of the Chamber of Deputies when she was first elected in 2006. Um, but it's her roots in the sort of far-right activism of the Roman suburbs that cause her to people to be very nervous about her. Um, the, her rivals, the opposition parties, they, they insist that, you know, this... These people can't be trusted with democracy. Their tradition um, was opposed to parliamentary democracy. It also used to have um, ideologies like racial supremacy as part of it. She's moved away from those more toxic elements and rebranded as pro-European, pro-NATO, more mainstream, but holding on to this conservative Christian right ideology about traditional family units, um, support for families, um, anti-immigration um, law and order, uh, the, these kind of things. Yeah, I've noticed that a number of conservative commentators are indeed supporters of that party in Italy saying that it's essentially in the same position on the ideological spectrum now as the Conservative Party in the United Kingdom or the Republican Party in the United States. Although, mind you, look at parts of the Republican Party in the United States in particular, that's not necessarily that reassuring. Well, there's something to that. I mean, what we have here is a movement that has grown out of the transition from fascism in Italy. So it does have in its history, that transition from fascism. Um, and it, it's it's certainly the case that, although I said Maloney has disavow- disavowed those more toxic elements of that tradition, um, like racism, uh, which is now a political taboo uh, at leadership level anyway, um, I- even though that's the case, it's no doubt that their supporters, among their supporters and perhaps even candidates, some of the, that ideology no doubt remains. Um, and then, but what what she's managed to do though is she's managed to get the vote share that she's currently on court, course to get something around twenty five percent. She's managed to do that by normalizing the party a bit, so by distancing herself from the more from that more sort of problematic baggage, and rebranding herself as something more mainstream. So she has she she's very aware and careful about which audience she's addressing. She's she's very sensitive to the international interest in this and how Italy is perceived internationally. So she's also sought to reassure European partners. And she is at this point, um, you know, she's she's a sort of a hardened politician. She's been in there in the parliament for quite a long time. As I said, she's previously served in cabinet. She was a minister for under in a uh, government of Silvio Berlusconi. So she is very used to this coalition making um, and um, the it, it's an interesting balance to see how she's managing to straddle notes that still appeal to that very hardline base. Like she wants to push for a presidential system in Italy, which would have like a, a directly elected president. And 
lots of people have ideas about how to reform Italy's electoral system to make it a bit more reliable so that they don't have continual government crises, which happen all the time. Um, but the idea of having a great leader when it's proposed from a party like this with a fascist background is understandable if it causes nervousness, particularly among the left-wing circles in Italy. Yes, yeah, indeed it is. I mean, I, I suppose it's the case, isn't it, that I, I know something that struck me when I started visiting Italy for the first time was that the country clearly hadn't gone through anything like the sort of denazification program which happened in, in Germany after the war. You could see, you know, memorabilia with the face of Mussolini on them in in shops, on bottles of wine and all kinds of things. And there was always, there was immediately after the war, there was a there was a successor party which morphed into another party, which is now ultimately morphed into um in, in into this party. So there's always been a degree of, if not legitimacy, it has not been as outside the pale in Italian politics, this particular political strand, as it might have been in some other countries. It might help if I sketch out a little bit about what political activism is like in Italy. Um, so those, you know, faces of Mussolini on bottles of wine stuff, that's kind of tourist tat. You might find that in in Russia with the faces of Stalin or in other countries that used to be part of the so- Soviet Union. Um, it's slightly bad taste uh, tourist memorabilia. That kind of thing did cause controversy in Italy too as well. But yeah, there are live fascists who still call themselves fascists and fondly remember Benito Mussolini and honour him with ceremonies. So that is a live uh, political tradition, albeit a fringe one and a very controversial one in Italy. Um, So for example, when I was living in northern Rome, um, something that I did a lot of reporting on was the sort of extreme and very active strands of Uh, political activism among teenagers and whether hard left or hard right and there would be very distinct groups uh, of those who would who would be part of high school and it was a normal play it was a normal part of school for those groups to be at each other's throats and sometimes clash violently and have brawls for example one um, high school in my neighborhood introduced a book onto the curriculum which had a gay character and then in response to that the local teenagers who were um, in the far right did a kind of raid on the school where they threw bangers and smoke bombs and it was very intimidating especially for the gay students who are actually just going to class you know with their with their backpacks and stuff Um, and this kind of thing goes on and then on the left-wing side you have occupations they take over abandoned buildings and use them to have art events and raves and um, sometimes use it for, for like refugee outreach and care organizations. But there's a real um, participation in quite extreme politics among teenagers. And that's where Georgia Maloney comes from. So she she joined the the Italian social movement when she was 15. This was a hard right, what they call a post-fascist movement, something that's trying to reconcile the history of fascism and move into something that's more like uh, mainstream conservatism, but also without necessarily completely disavowing the fascist roots. Uh, she became a yeah a teenage activist. She was known as a firebrand at that point. Very brave, you know, a kind of a rare woman in these movements and being fearless and outspoken. Um, and then quickly uh, she, from that, she was noticed as a talent and she was put on the electoral lists of the National Alliance, another one of these post-fascist uh, uh, hereditary uh, inheritors of this tradition and ended up in parliament um, and she's you know continued her ascent since then um, and she's very um, she has a certain charisma she speaks in this throaty 
a quite deep, commanding Roman voice. She's relatively young. She's always looked relatively young. She's also, although she's 45 now, which is comparable to other leaders, she came to prominence at a relatively young age. Um, and quite a lot of what's going on here is probably support for a fresh face. It's also worth noticing that in the polls, her particular party has about 25%. It's within a coalition of uh, right-wing parties that all together look, look set for a majority. But there's also a very, there's said to be a very high level of abstention, um, something around 35% if, if polls bear out, which would be a record for Italy. So there's quite a lot of disaffection in politics. And I think quite a lot of what's going on here is frustration on, on part of the electorate. That's all very interesting. And it really gives some backdrop. It should be said, though, that no politician with as clear links to a fascist past has become prime minister of Italy since the war. So it does mark a historical turning point in that sense. Definitely. Yeah. And it's worth mentioning as well that during the campaign, a video of her as a teenage activist emerged. She was speaking to a French television station um, and she said, uh, you know, Mussolini was a great politician. Everything he did, he did for Italy. And that's exactly the kind of rhetoric you would hear from these far right activists. They they kind of they defend the legacy of Mussolini. They always play down how much he himself supported the more toxic parts of fascism. Like they say, he only introduced the racial laws because Hitler wanted him to. That's the kind of thing they say. And they're still anti-immigration, but they they insist it's it's due to an economic basis that immigrants cause wages to lower. So they're sort of aware of what's taboo and what's not and trying to kind of shift their tradition into modernity without without leaving behind these these roots. And it's also accompanied by a sort of, they still like to use the symbols and rituals of fascism. And that goes for Giorgio Maloney's party too. It still has the fascist flame as its, uh, as, as its logo. And there's, you know, it also has a slogan of um, uh, a God, country, fatherland, something like that, which is also associated with um, with the fascist movements. So Maloney and Brothers of Italy seem to some extent at least have stolen the clothes of the previous hard right party, which was the League uh, led by uh, Salvini. Um, How much of that has to do with Salvini being... I suppose in some ways on the wrong side of history because he was so associated with a pro-Putin position. Is that important in Italian domestic politics or to domestic issues uh, trump that? I think it is important. Um, There's a lot of debate in Italy about what the right approach to Ukraine is. Um, But Matteo Salvini very much had made public his fascination with the Russian president, Vladimir Putin. He was pictured wearing a Putin t-shirt at one stage. You know, he would praise his politics. Um, and that's very much discredited among a significant part of the electorate at this point. Um, whatever your views on the approach to uh, how to support Ukraine or not, um, outright support for Putin is, uh, I would say, a fringe position. Um, so he has suffered from that. And also, Meloni has taken advantage of it. Uh, by distinguishing herself as pro-NATO. She says we need a strong alliance with the United States. We're pro-NATO. Also pro, uh, you know, Europe uh, Europe as a whole having a stronger common defence um, and very much pro-Ukraine. Um, it will. She remains in a coalition, though, that's running together with Salvini. So let's assume they do win power, they end up forming a, forming a coalition government this is a clear distinction between those two parties where elsewhere their politics of anti-immigration and so on might be similar. 
this approach to Ukraine is is one one thing that distinguishes them. So let's imagine Salvini gets fed up with playing the junior partner 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 in this coalition. It's an opportunity for him to try to distinguish himself again if he picks a fight on that issue. So this, even though Meloni herself is pro-Ukraine and pro the Western approach um, to the invasion, it may yet become a feature of the government because Salvini may, may try to distinguish himself again uh, with his more ambivalent views, uh, criticizing sanctions on Russia and so on. And what then for the, the, the domestic issues and the domestic problems which um, which Italy faces? Uh, I mean, both the League and uh, and Brothers of Italy are avowedly anti-immigrant. And indeed, I mean, I was look, been looking at some video clips. I saw one of a, of a Brothers of Italy candidate in Florence walking down the street and pointing at a at a Roma woman and saying, "You'll never have to see this woman again if we're elected." So, I mean, that kind of illustrates what you're talking about with some of the party members. Um, so immigration is clearly is clearly an enormous issue, but the economic situation and the fact that Italy has essentially suffered almost two decades of economic stagnation since the introduction of the euro kind of runs as an undercurrent under Italian politics and and is is an underlying cause of a lot of the instability we've seen in in recent decades, isn't it? Completely, and you can see how this underscores what the platform of the right is. It's all about how to have a secure family life. Um, that, that's something that's been denied now for generations of Italian young people who can't start their lives, can't get secure jobs, can't get housing, can't move on. Um, and, um, you know, there's a real inequality within Italy in terms of who has a secure job and who's to- just totally on the black market and has no rights at all. And overwhelmingly, it's young people who are in the latter and then on the immigration side of things, this has just been a set, like a festering grievance for over a decade now in Italy. I think um, that the longevity of this issue is perhaps overlooked in northern countries. It was really in 2011 that the arrivals across the Mediterranean Sea to Italian islands started to really pick up. And initially, the response, um, as it was in Greece, was... Uh, it was focused on helping people and uh, trying to accommodate them and an empathetic response. Um, but as the years have gone on, um, that has really become, uh, that people have become very jaded. The people who arrive from over the Mediterranean and come to Italy are very visible um, in towns in a way that they're not perhaps in Northern Europe. So you'll see encampments at train stations or under bridges. And this has been going on for a very long time. Um, there's this sense that it's been an emergency for perhaps a decade and there hasn't been an adequate institutional response. And part of the reason that Italy is caught in that trap is because uh, of the EU, essentially, uh, because the the Dublin regulation um puts the responsibility of processing asylum applications on the first state of entry, meaning that Italy, because of its geographical location, has to process all of these people, even though arguably it has less resources to do so because it's got a less strong economy and so on. And even though these people who are arriving don't necessarily want to live in Italy, but intend to go further north. Uh, So there's this long grievance that Italy, um, that's very strongly and widely felt in Italy, I would say, cross the political spectrum, uh, that they've been abandoned by Europe with this issue um, to to and that they need more support, particularly from northern countries to uh, to deal with it. Um, and it, it is totally tied up again with the economic uh, situation that you that you described, the lack of growth, 
uh, for uh, two decades. Um, Italy has fundamental structural problems, uh, particularly an aging population. And it's a kind of reality that informs Italian politics in a way that it's like a vicious cycle because there's less opportunity for young people. There's less spending on young people, less spending on things like education. There's a much larger, older electorate that keeps voting uh, to keep that in place, to keep um, spending to be skewed towards older generations on things like pensions, health and so on. And that in turn causes more young people to emigrate and more and more concentrates the voting bloc among the old. Um, so it's a very difficult trap to get out of. Um, and uh, there's there's more to be said about that, particularly because I think that often the nature of it- Italy's economy is misunderstood um, outside of Italy in terms of where spending is at. It's sort of portrayed as this really irresponsible spending spending economy when in fact, you know, the story, the real story of the last few decades is that they've been imposing essentially austerity for an extremely long time and trying to not let their debt grow anymore. I mean, some economic analysts point to the euro as the problem on this, that when the Italian economic miracle, because it was kind of a miracle that happened in the post-war decades, happened, the the successive governments, and they came and went very rapidly, but there was a continuity there. They had control of fiscal policy and there was a a regular, quite frequent, you know, there'd be a devaluation of the lira, which enabled them to stabilise at the at the level which suited them in the international marketplace. And of course, they lost all that and they lost that control with the introduction of the euro. Yeah, it's it's a complex story of more than one factor. Italy is a major manufacturing economy. It's 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 the EU's manufacturing powerhouse after Germany. And yeah, having the power to devalue your currency is helpful for exports. Um, the story of Italy's debt uh, is really one that they there was misspending in the nineteen eighties, particularly. And there was then borrowing at high interest rates. And primarily the debt burden that has been weighing on Italy is paying back interest, paying back interest on this really old debt um, that isn't you know, causing any benefits now. And then um, in terms of th- this, they are tied into having to keep doing that and keep uh, balancing the books and being very fiscally responsible because of their membership of the euro and because they are bound by the EU's fiscal rules. And that's something that they want to reform. Uh, they want to a way to to get out of that and to try to invest more so that they can grow their economy and then be in a better place to pay down this debt. It's a, it's a long running grievance. Um, we don't know the counterfactual of what would have happened in Italy if it wasn't in the euro. We don't know that. We it, It's difficult to separate out as well. What's the economic benefit of being in the single market, which is undoubtedly significant, um, and, you know, whether it was feasible for Italy not to be part of this currency if all of the other countries around it are. Um, but it, it is it is a debate. But what I think what's really significant about Italian politics is how the idea of leaving the euro or leaving the EU has completely collapsed as a political position since Brexit. That's no longer a vote winner. There's actually a, a, a party called Italexit that's actually running in this election. And you might not have heard of them because they're on less than 3% um, in the polls. It's a real minority position. They're outright for leaving the euro, leaving the EU. And all those other parties that once distinguished themselves based on Euroscepticism or some level of criticism towards the EU, they've all moderated in order to, you know, keep on board with their electorate. Um, so, 
you no longer hear talk of uh, Italy have a referendum or or you know the return of the lira or any of these things. This, this is this is very much left the mainstream of Italian politics since Brexit. So what can we expect if, as anticipated from the polls, and we should say there's a blackout imposed on polls in Italy, the last one I think was on September the 9th and there won't be another one before the election. But if those polls are correct, what kind of a government will we get? Is it the sort of the conventional centre-right policies which Brothers of Italy are, are portraying themselves as being in now? Or do LGBTQ people and people who aren't white do they have anything to fear from this government? Um, if the polls bear out, the coalition would be made up of Silvio Berlusconi's party, um, sort of a more conventional centre-right party, and then these two other parties of Lega and um, Brothers of Italy under S- Salvini and Meloni. Um, in terms of what their programme will be, the there is a lot of concern about what is Maloney's true position regarding the rights of gay people? Because she has appeared at family rights rallies, meaning um, defense of the traditional family uh, rallies. And she has positioned herself as someone who does represent um, those socially conservative values, um, opposition to gay marriage. Um, she's moderated those views again. So this time she says in her electoral program, that she won't touch uh, civil unions, uh, which gay people have the right to civil unions in Italy. But what she is opposed to is adoption rights. Um, that That is a position that is fairly widespread in Italy. And she's, she's saying that because, you know, there's a certain electorate that supports it. Um, so she's saying, she, she said the same thing about abortion, um, that she's not in favor of, rolling back abortion rights for women which are very have been embedded for a very 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 long time initially they're, they're you know those laws are quite old um but what she wants she says is more choice for women so if you do find yourself pregnant in a difficult situation and maybe you don't have a partner or you're very young or something you'll have the supports you need in order to raise the child instead of having an abortion uh, so this is the way she's kind of posing her policies in a way to continue to appeal to her hardline base while making them as as less scary as possible uh, to the to the broader electorate. Um, and then how it will bear out is this, you know, it's a it's a it's an important question. We don't really know. But it is important to note that, you know, this is a coalition. It's a coalition government. It's difficult to get any laws through in Italy. Uh, it's di- it it this is one of the features of Italian parliamentary politics that is different difficult to pass things, um, and it takes a very long time. Uh, so it's it's difficult for one party like this to come in and suddenly impose really extreme um, policy changes because the the way the system is structured, it 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 kind of it makes that very, it makes that extremely difficult. That's why there's been some of these suggestions that there should be electoral reform to make reforms. Um, more easy, um, so that there, you know, more difficult changes can be made. And for migrants, um, she wants to have what she calls a naval blockade. Um, what that means is she's in favor of, n- of she doesn't want there to be any more crossings across the Mediterranean Sea, and she wants any asylum applications to be processed outside of the EU. This is actually um, 
a proposal that's been around from different political groups in the European Union, this idea of extraterrestrial uh, ex-EU processing uh, centres, um, so that only those people who are already approved as refugees would then be relocated um, into the EU rather than people coming and then maybe being deported or hanging around or, you know, whatever, this, this complex and messy situation that there is currently. And they wouldn't all land on Italy's shores either in that case either, would they necessarily? Yes. Um, so mm. th- this is, again, a contentious issue. Uh, Southern European countries like Italy and others have been, they've they've asked for what they call solidar- they call solidarity. So some kind of system for dividing up where migrants go in the EU. Um, so it might not it might not be that you know the person who's who's emigrating who's coming to Europe decides uh, oh I want to go to Ireland or I want to go to Denmark or wherever it might be. Um, but there might be some sort of quota that each EU country you know agrees to according to its size. That proposal has been halted for many, many years, mostly due to opposition among Eastern and Central European states, which also have very strong anti-immigration politics. And they are very opposed to having some sort of quota of of, uh, of migrants imposed on them because they don't get very many at the moment. That whole migration file, that is something that needs to be reformed at the EU level. And it's something, it's an extremely dysfunctional debate, I would say. Um, and it's been deadlocked for a very, very long time. The advent of Meloni, probably as as Italian prime minister, I doubt would change that. At European level, though, what what an Italian prime minister from the hard right would represent would be a strengthening in the block of hard right powers in Europe. So she's in the same European group as Poland's Law and Justice, for example, um, and. Yeah, they 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 cooperate, and also she's she's made it quite clear that she's she's on good terms with Vox in Spain, and that she hopes that if she wins, then Vox will do well in Spain as well. That you know it will open the door to a hard right Spanish government. So she she does hope to cast this as a kind of wave. The main things that will be watched internationally, though, are two two big questions. Does this change in government mean anything for the wider Western consensus about Ukraine? and on EU sanctions? Uh, the answer to that is probably no. There probably won't be a huge change there. And the second big question is, is this government going to keep Italy economically stable? Since we may well be heading into this massive recession, Italy, because of all of its debt, would be very vulnerable. It's very vulnerable to increases in, in interest rates and debt becoming more expensive and so on. So you you end up with the, this um, scary prospect of... Uh, of default and you know everything that we were familiar with in the mm. eurozone crisis uh, coming back again because the powers that be in Brussels and indeed in Frankfurt were, were kind of given comfort by the presence of Mario Draghi at the head of this technocratic government. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they were delighted. I mean, everyone in Brussels was like at the institutional level were just like so happy to have Mario Draghi as Italian prime minister and there was all this talk about, you know, Italy's back, you know, and it can finally have the appropriate weight that it should as a large country in the EU and a major economy and so on, um, rather than being politically marginalised, which it has been because of its political instability for so many years. Um, So, yeah, they were so happy. And at that point, uh, remember, in during the pandemic, the EU agreed this unprecedented economic stimulus fund of 750 billion in a mix of grants and loans of which Italy uh, received the single largest amount 
Um, so how to spend that and well, whether it will be spent well, that's a major concern. Um, I remember I was speaking to members of um, Mario Draghi's team um, initially when they this first they were first designing how this money would be spent. And they were aware that his, however long he had in, in, in power as prime minister, it was going to be temporary. And they told me at the time that they were creating structures so that there would be a, a sort of a permanent civil service in charge of how this money was spent. So irrespective of a, a change in hands as prime minister, that the, the, the program, the money would still be spent wisely. We'll see. <laughs> Um, so Meloni's pl- uh, platform does say that she wants changes to how the money is spent according to the new crises, which isn't COVID, but is now the war in Ukraine and the energy crisis. I would say that that is not an unusual position among many countries that have yet to spend this money. Um, but yeah, that that will be very, very closely watched. And it could be a flashpoint for potential conflict or tension between Italy and let's say the European Commission. If Commission is is sort of looking over the shoulder of the of the government in Rome and saying you should spend on this and not on that and maybe they want to spend something differently and the and the commission is making concerned noises, that could be a potential uh, source of tension. And then right at the other end of Europe in a very different political culture Naomi in in Sweden you have what on the surface might look like a rather similar election result with a right-wing party with um, some roots in the really far-right neo-Nazism uh, doing really well, becoming the largest party of the right in Sweden and uh, potentially entering government. But it's very different. It's a very different political background, although there is a common cause in the issue of immigration. Yeah, I think the advent of the uh, Sweden Democrats, it's a reflection of there are a couple of trends in Europe at the moment. One is these parties which were once uh, taboo or considered beyond the pale entering into um, coalitions and being accepted by other parties in coalitions as partners. Um, but perhaps the more significant trend is the introduction of their ideas, the mainstreaming of far-right ideas into the centre and even their adoption by left-wing parties in some cases. Ideas about, um, you know, the need to protect some sort of European civilization, a lot of the rhetoric around immigration that has um, been completely mainstreamed, particularly in Scandinavia. Um, it's a long running trend. Yeah, we've seen it already in Denmark where, you know, quite really very strong anti-immigrant policies have been brought in under pressure from a right wing party, I think the Danish People's Party in that case. So it does, Scandinavian politics is shifting from what people, uh, many people in this country thought was the social democratic ideal. It's it's kind of moving away from that on some level, even if it's largely performative. Performative is key. Um, it's been an, a trend in Denmark in particular to see there's been a competition among political parties about who can be the most crass to on the immigration issue and ha- who can uh, propose the most headline grabbing um, uh, performative uh, policy. Like, for example, the jewellery law, which uh, said that, you know, that any valuables from from uh, refu- refugees and asylum seekers coming into Denmark could be could be seized from them to be used to pay for their their processing. Um, this, to my knowledge, has never actually been used, or if it has, it's been extremely little. Um, and which kind of reveals what this was: it's the use of policy for campaigning purposes. Um, this is something which we're now familiar with increasingly from the UK as well. It's the politicization of policy. Policies being proposed not to fix a problem um, that's been identified so much as to 
to communicate as communication tools to position a party as um as you know very tough on immigration or whatever the the matter might be um and that's a that's a feature throughout Scandinavia and it's something that all the parties are doing it's forced it's forced it's it's been sort of precipitated by the rise of the hard right but it's forced all of the um the parties to com- compete on that ground and thereby it's it's normalized a pretty extreme rhetoric and and policies in some cases so for many of the the hard right parties of the sort which we're discussing here today the the government of Viktor Orbán in Hungary was a sort of a touchstone of their ideas being put into practice and their rhetoric being uttered from the halls the halls of government in at least in at least one European country, probably others as well, but particularly um, Hungary. Now that's changed a little bit, as we mentioned in relation to to Italy, because of what's happened in 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 Ukraine, um, and Orbán seems a little more isolated now. And I wonder about the announcement this week of these. Uh, these measures reducing funding to Hungary over the next few years, are they likely to have real impact or effect in your view? So, yeah, maybe just to recap, the European Commission has proposed cutting or or freezing outlay of EU funds to Hungary to the tune of about 7 billion. And there's negotiations ongoing for another 7.5 billion, which is being held up uh, in both cases due to concerns about the rule of law um, and and misspending of these funds. I mean, to, to put it crudely, Viktor Orban is accused of using these funds, channeling these funds to allies um, to keep himself in power. Um, so the commission said there was all kinds of concerns, like many public contracts only ever had one bidder, all sorts of things. Um, so, you know, for, for those who have been pushing for action on Hungary for a long time, uh, this is too little, too late, and there's too many lo- loopholes, there's too many ways that Hungary could still wiggle out of this and unlock the money. Um, and then, uh, you know, for those who are uh, perhaps against it and want the money, um, then then it's, it's a step too far. What the Commission has essentially done is it has pushed this issue to be decided by the governments of the EU member states. They're the ones that ultimately have to decide whether to approve this proposal or not. So it's kicked the can uh, to the, the European Council, to, to the member state governments, and they, they have to decide. Um, all in all, um, Orban is way more isolated in the EU than he was uh, before the invasion of Ukraine. He's attempted to sort of straddle the fence on this invasion by remaining a kind of maintaining a, a relationship with Putin, um, talking about special deals for Hungary where they continue to get cheap gas, uh, opposing sanctions in some cases, um, circum- refusing to allow arms for Ukraine to cross the territory of Hungary. Um, yeah, straddling, being rather ambiguous, basically, on, on whether he's actually part of the Western uh, support for Ukraine or not. Um, and that has alienated him enormously, as including from some of his... Uh, erstwhile allies like Poland, uh, the Polish government has been horrified by this carry-on. So, uh, as well as many of the the Central Eastern European member states and the Baltics, so he's he's more isolated than ever before. Whereas previously it was northern and western countries that you know were sort of fed up and and disgusted with Orban, it's much more widely felt. So it's possible that patience has run out with him now, and it's so interesting to see how much Meloni she positions herself to the outside world. She's very much addressing an international audience. She makes messages in English and French and Italian. And and most of what she's trying to say to the outside world is, I'm not Orban. 
I'm actually pro-NATO. I'm pro-Ukraine. Um, and so she's she's very aware of not of, of trying to avoid being put into that camp and, and not being isolated. So it, it's interesting to see an example of a hard right party that's that's sort of evolving and um, and changing its positions in response to this isolation of women. Naomi, thanks very much indeed for joining us today. And that's it for today. Our producer was Declan Conlon. Our engineer is JJ Vernon. We're going to be back very soon indeed. But until then, goodbye and thanks very much for listening.